earnestly seek to commend yourself to God as an approved worker who has nothing to be ashamed of, handling the word of truth with precision. We're glad you're joining us for today's program, A Word from the Word, with your host, Pastor Tom, who will unpack for us the richness and beauty of the Bible's original languages as they bear on key words and concepts from both Testaments. Our hope is that your walk with God will be strengthened and deepened, and both your understanding and application of God's Word will be enriched, and you'll be drawn to love it more and more each day. And now, here's Pastor Tom. Hello, friends. Thanks for joining me today, whether you're in your car, listening on your mobile device, maybe even in front of our radio, or catching the podcast. Friends, a well-known evangelist and Bible teacher from a prior generation, G. Campbell Morgan, recounted the story of a coal miner who met with him once and told Morgan, I would give anything to believe that God would forgive my sins, but I cannot believe that he will forgive them if I merely ask him. It's just too cheap. To which Morgan then graciously replied, My dear friend, did you work today? The miner answered, Yes, I was down in the mine. Morgan then asked, How were you lifted out of that pit? Did you have to pay? Immediately the miner replied, Of course not. I just stepped into the cage and was lifted to the top. Morgan asked, Weren't you afraid to entrust yourself to that cage? Was the cage too cheap? The miner replied, Oh, no! While it was certainly cheap for me, it cost the company a lot of money to sink that shaft and install the elevator. Well, after the miner heard himself say those words out loud, he was suddenly struck by the truth. It was as if a light bulb went on in his head. He realized the spiritual parallel. What had not cost him anything, salvation, was certainly not cheap for God. Before that moment, it had not dawned on him that God paid a great price in sending his son so he could lift fallen humanity out of the pit of sin. This miner finally got it that all anyone had to do was by faith step into the cage. Years ago, U.S. News and World Reports surveyed Americans to see who they thought would most likely go to heaven. 65% of those surveyed indicated they believed Oprah Winfrey and Michael Jordan were very likely to go to heaven. 79% answered they believed Mother Teresa would go to heaven. Only one person scored higher than Mother Teresa. The percentage was over 80%. Are you wondering who beat Mother Teresa? Who those polled said was very likely to go to heaven? The answer was the people filling out the survey. Over 80% of them believed they'd go to heaven. Well, friends, for the last few weeks, we've been taking the rest of March to join journey down the path of Passion of the Christ, and I've proposed that it is a path peppered with divine paradoxes. I've also proposed that we as Christ followers must absolutely understand these paradoxes, and not only understand them, but be willing to embrace them, embrace their truths. And I've been proposing that embracing these paradoxical truths can only come through surrender and faith. 
The overarching scripture text that has set the stage for us is Luke nine twenty three and 24, where Jesus taught, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life, and a quick reminder, here's the New Testament word, suke, will lose it. But whoever loses his life, same word, for my sake, he's the one who will save it. You see, friends, embracing the truths of these divine paradoxes means that we must surrender the suke-driven life, that part of us that represents our baser self, the self that operates purely in the natural realm, the realm of the senses, including our feelings and emotions. Friends, the path to the passion of the Christ is the path of surrender, the path of crucifixion. I've been saying that one function of the cross is to put to death our suke life. Dying to the self-life distances us from the old life and its habit patterns, even our thinking patterns. The other side of the spiritual coin is the zoe life. The New Testament writers use this term when they're referring to eternal life. Sometimes our English Bibles translate it life. Other times it's rendered eternal life. But it's the same word, zoe. What's interesting is that the New Testament writers favored zoe over the other word available in the Greek language, bios. Sound familiar? Bios is where we get our English words biology and biosphere. Bias simply means physical existence. So to first century people, it meant life as mere existence. To the New Testament Christ followers and writers of the New Testament, it's used negatively nine times to mean living for self. Zoe, however, is used over 130 times to indicate the fuller life, eternal, spiritual life. This contrast is intentional. Zoe is not mere existence, and it's not merely meant to convey duration. In other words, everlasting, as we commonly think. But it's intended to add a whole new moral and ethical dimension to life. So, it's helpful as Christ followers, to view eternal life as having both duration and dimension, everlasting life to come and ever-present life now. This juncture, you may be saying to yourself, so what? And I get that, I do. The significance of all this will come into play when we seek to understand the divine paradoxes Jesus attempted to teach his disciples, particularly during this interval between his transfiguration recorded in Matthew 17 and his triumphal entry, our Palm Sunday, recorded in Matthew 21. And I'm sure we'll remember what happened just one week after Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on a donkey. You know, that parade route where the excited populace waved palm branches and shouted, Hosanna! To the shock and surprise of his followers, Jesus was arrested, tortured, and finally executed, crucified. You see, friends, sandwiched between these two significant events is a string of Jesus' teachings that call attention to several key divine paradoxes. And these paradoxes are set against the backdrop of the phrase, the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, meaning the same thing. Today, friends, 
part three in our March series, is Salvation God's Way. And the subtitle is Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Today's paradox is found in Matthew 19, 16 through 30. Jesus' encounter with the rich man, or more familiarly, the rich young ruler. As we look at this account, keep in mind that we're slicing a piece of Jesus' teaching ministry out of the last two weeks or so of his life. And this encounter with the rich young ruler is bringing us closer to that fateful moment that will set in motion the path to the passion of the Christ. And Jesus knew this. On the other hand, it becomes clear that Jesus' followers and the common people were clueless. Our English Bibles sometimes have over chapter 21 a heading like the triumphal entry. This is because this was the prevailing mindset of the Jewish people. They were all anticipating that Jesus would lead the Jews to triumph, a victory over the oppressive regime of Rome. Well, let's look at Matthew nineteen sixteen through 30. A man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, and here's our word, Zoe, keep the commandments. He inquired, which ones? Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your mother and father, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, friends, note that there's one commandment Jesus intentionally left out. The young man responded, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, If you want to be perfect, in other words, complete or meet the goal, go sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Friends, the context here is not a reference to those who own wealth, but to those for whom wealth owns. Jesus is not opposed to possessing wealth, only opposed to wealth possessing us. So Jesus left out the commandment, you shall not covet. This rich young man coveted his wealth and showed it by walking away, rejecting salvation God's way. Let's continue. When the disciples heard this, it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, they were greatly astonished and asked Jesus, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Peter answered him, We've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them all, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. Now, friends, before we can begin to understand the underlying paradox here, let's clarify a little more the phrases kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, okay? The phrase the kingdom of heaven is interchangeable with the phrase the kingdom of God. This was a phrase pregnant with meaning to first century Jews. Its cultural, political, and religious significance we in the 21st century need to grasp. King is not only used in the Bible for human rulers, but ultimately for God as supreme ruler of the world. Psalm 47.2 exclaims, For the Lord Most High, a reference to Yahweh, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. You see, friends, Israel as a nation understood her relation to God as a kingdom with the Lord himself as their ultimate king, even though in their history they were also ruled by human kings. Through the prophet Isaiah, the Lord declared, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King, in Isaiah 43.15. God's rulership over Israel was a foretaste of a yet future kingdom where evil would be fully overcome and where those living in that kingdom would only know blessedness, peace, and joy. Inextricably linked to this expectation of a future kingdom of bliss was the coming of their Messiah. Their messianic expectancy included this hoped-for kingdom. In fact, the coming of their Messiah would trigger the coming of this kingdom. John the Baptist astonished his audiences when he announced that this expected and hoped-for kingdom was at hand in the person of Jesus. Matthew 3, 2 records his first declaration, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus authenticates John's declaration when he officially embarked on his own public ministry. Immediately after his temptation in the wilderness, Matthew records Jesus' first declaration in Matthew four seventeen. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Shortly after, while in Nazareth, Jesus stood up in the synagogue and read from the prophet Isaiah. Remember that dramatic moment? Remember what Jesus read? It's in Luke four sixteen through 21 But our purpose today, the significant verse, is verse 21. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You see, friends, the gist of the Isaiah text quoted by Jesus was that the one the Spirit of the Lord rested on would preach the gospel to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recover sight to the blind, free the downtrodden, etc., basically describing a ministry to which Jesus himself was fulfilling. In so doing, Jesus was declaring that the kingdom has now arrived, and he, as its king, was now here. Interestingly, after Jesus' public ministry was up and running, he makes another declaration. If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
in Matthew 12:28. So Jesus was declaring that through his ministry, the kingdom of God has dawned. However, what Jesus' own disciples failed to realize was that the kingdom that arrived with Jesus did not include the triumphal victory over Rome, longed for by the Jews. This is evident by the crowd's reaction to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and their cries of Hosanna, which meant, Save now! You see, the disciples and the common people that followed Jesus failed to recognize that Jesus brought the kingdom that arrived secretly, like leaven. The kingdom arrived inconspicuously, like a mustard seed. The kingdom arrived with apparent smallness, like a small pearl, but with great value. Friends, I can understand the first century Jewish people expecting the kingdom of God to obliterate the present evil age and bring it to a swift end. But the mystery they missed was that the kingdom of God arrived mysteriously and in so doing didn't fulfill their expectations. The reality was, however, that this kingdom of God invaded the present evil age But instead of obliterating it, it overlapped it. In a sense, we could say it infiltrated it. The kingdom of God inaugurated by Jesus' arrival and ministry dawned in the form of a mystery. A mystery that did not overwhelm the world overtly, but rather began working covertly. Honestly, I think it was hard for the Jews to see that both kingdoms were now existing side by side, and that their perfect kingdom, the one that will bring the present evil age to an end, as foretold by the Old Testament prophets, would only be fully realized at the Messiah's second coming. I'm actually amazed, friends, that the disciples ever got it. I always read Acts 1-6 with bated breath. Literally nanoseconds before Jesus ascends back to the Father, the disciples ask him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Well, believe it or not, friends, all of this infuses meaning into Jesus' encounter with the rich young ruler. Ah, you thought I forgot about him, didn't you? All this provides the backdrop we need to properly interpret several statements made during that conversation. Friends, there's more here than meets the eye. So let's take a second look at the story and see what riches await us. No pun intended. Matthew 19.16 introduces us to a man that came up to Jesus. How we arrive at him being a rich young ruler is that we get the rich from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we get the young from Matthew only, and we get the ruler from Luke only. Then he asks Jesus this fateful question, What must I do to inherit eternal life? This expression, eternal life, friends, is used interchangeably with several other expressions in this account. Eternal life is mentioned in verse 16 and 29 and acts like bookends. Heaven is mentioned in verse 21. Kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God appear together in verses 23 and 24. And why I believe they're interchangeable. Saved appears in verse 25, and finally, renewal of all things, or regeneration, or age to come, appears in verse 28. 
When we combine the meanings of these words or expressions, we find that layered underneath this story, these terms point to a realm inhabited by saved people, people who've been delivered from the tyrannies or enslavements of this world, including its wealth or riches. And the people of this kingdom are now living a life under God's rule and reign. We also discover that this deliverance from the enslavements of the world can only be accomplished by God. Any attempt by human effort is impossible. Note verse 26, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. So, friends, it is this understanding that we must read into the seemingly innocent question posed by the rich young ruler. What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Which begins the account in Matthew 19.16. As this account unfolds, it forces us to focus on the do part. In other words, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And there's our word, zoe. Notice, friends, how Jesus directs this conversation. In verse 18, Jesus intentionally quotes only commandments that deal with our relationship with each other. In other words, relating to our social and civic responsibilities. In verse 20, we learn that this man had human achievement in mind, and he thought he had made it in. He thought he aced the entrance exam to get into the kingdom of God. But he was stymied to discover that the entrance exam included something he was not prepared for, and this uncovered his true heart motive. In verse 19, Jesus wraps up his list with, Love your neighbor as yourself. And the ultimate opportunity to inherit eternal life was about to be offered. In verse 21, sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. Friends, the sad conclusion to this encounter is that the rich young ruler went away sad. Verse 22, because he had great wealth. This word also implies having possessions or even real estate. And here's the crux of today's divine paradox. It was inconceivable to the Jewish mind of that day that wealth could hinder one from entering the kingdom of God. Wealth to them was a sign of God's favor. Wealth was viewed as a reward from God for being good. Maybe this rich young ruler supposed he was addressing an equal. Jesus is a good teacher and I'm a good man. What's interesting, friends, is that in this conversation and intertwined in this paradox, Jesus is correcting mankind's faulty view of goodness and subtly declaring himself to be God, possessing the same goodness that God possesses and that wealth and achievements can actually blind us to our need for Jesus, salvation God's way. So, no matter how good we think we are, we can't eliminate the sin present in our nature. Only Jesus can do that. Trusting in Jesus' finished work on the cross is the only shoe-in to the kingdom of God we have. Friends, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation, God's way. 
the path of the kingdom of heaven. Friends, if you're not sure you have salvation God's way, why not humbly come before God with these words? Dear God, I realize now that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and was raised from the dead to give me new life. Forgive me of my sins. Jesus, come into my heart and life as Savior and Lord. Give me eternal life and hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, I would love to hear from you, especially if you prayed this prayer with me. And I want to pray for you as we all, in recognizing our own spiritual poverty, take stock of our spiritual condition and be sure that we're really in the faith. I hope today's program has been a blessing and a challenge. Paul challenged the Corinthian believers with these parting words. Examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith in 2 Corinthians 13.5. A periodic spiritual checkup is always a good thing. Friends, today's broadcast will close with an email address where you may write me. In addition, those of you who may wish to join a Word from the Word support team can find out how to do that by writing me as well. Listeners like you keep a Word from the Word on the air. Your support is truly appreciated. Thanks again for listening today, friends. And remember, Jesus loves you. I'm Pastor Tom with a Word from the Word. Friends, If you would like to let Pastor Tom know what this program has meant to you, email him at awordfromtheword at minister.com. That's awordfromtheword at minister.com.